0: Thank you very much, choir. A good message for us to remember. The Lord is sovereign. And he was yesterday, too. He is today. He will be tomorrow. And by the text we have before us in Revelation chapter number 4, he's not changing his seat. He's going to stay that way forever and ever and ever. So join me, if you will. Chapter number four, book of Revelation. So far, three weeks in three chapters, we're doing good. See, we're going to make it. There. We're going to do it. Chapter four. Now, I want to focus, especially if you want to, in your mind, circle a verse or whatever you like to do and say, this is what the emphasis is, and it's hard to do that with Scripture, But verse number 11 is where I'm going to camp a little while today, where it says, Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Follow with me as I read through the chapter for you. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what may take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature, like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. The fourth creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power well, you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Heavenly Father, when we get a glimpse like this, it really goes beyond, in many ways, what we can imagine in our minds. But Lord, you gave us this view for a good reason. That we might stand in awe of who you are. Be thankful for what you've done for us. And anticipate the day when we shall see you. I pray that you might work in our hearts today as we study this chapter. Show to us the things that we must know. Encourage us along the way. And keep our eyes on things above, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you just got a glimpse of heaven in this passage. I don't know what you have imagined heaven to look like. I can't tell you a whole lot more about it than what I read in Scripture, by the way, because I've never been there. More than likely, you haven't either. Always thought it's interesting. When I wrote a book on heaven and the believer, I said in the introduction there, I'm like a tour guide who's never been there. And so you talk about these things, and you talk about things that only God could tell us. And He did. And so what you have seen in chapter number 4 is what you will see if the Lord takes you home today. All right? If the Lord should take you home today to be with him, this is what you will see. I know we have a lot of other ideas in our mind of fluffy clouds and little harps and wings on our backs. That's not what he says. This is what he says. And it's quite an impressive picture. We're going to walk through this chapter because he wanted us to see it. He wanted us to see it. Now, I will start with something. i just call my initial comments here. All right. In many conservative, dispensational commentaries, it is believed that between chapter 3 and chapter 4, the rapture of the church has taken place. All right. Many teach it that way. Now, I'm not saying I'm different. I do believe it does. But they use chapter number four as the evidence of that. What they say is in verse number one, after these things, they mean after the church age. We just talked about the churches. And after the church age, now we enter into the rapture occurring and now we're up in glory. In verse number 1, they mention that there's a door standing open in heaven. And they say that might be a reference to the entrance of the believer into heaven at the rapture. They say in verse number 1 that there's a sound of a trumpet. And isn't that what we're waiting for? Well, they say that must be the rapture. Trumpet, because in 1 Thessalonians four sixteen it says, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And they say, here's the trumpet, so it must be the rapture. They also say in verse number 1, where he says, come up here. They say, well, that's similar to the rapture call. Now, these are curious things. I give you that. But I don't think they're very strong in supporting what they wanted to say. And I'll tell you why. First of all, come up here was not addressed to everybody in the church, but notice it was to John. He says, to John, come up here. And that'd be interesting how John was raptured and the other 11 weren't. Of course, they were already gone, weren't they? He said, well, there's your proof. No, John wasn't the only believer on the earth. So, that's one thing I noticed. First Thessalonians 4 also says, the Lord doesn't sit up there in heaven and say, hey, come up here. What does it say? He descends from heaven, doesn't it? It says that the Lord himself would descend from heaven, First Thessalonians four 16. We'll descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them where? In the clouds, in the air. Meet the Lord. So shall we always be with the Lord. He doesn't sit up in heaven and say, Hey, come up here. (laughs) He comes for us. That's a little distinction, but I think it's interesting. Now, the trumpet sounding voice is not declaring the rapture, but it's simply calling John to get up there and witness the events that are about to be set before him. So, what what do I say? I say, well, I don't think those are the best arguments. People base it on that and then The critics of the rapture theory go right at that. They say, well, that's a pretty weak argument. In that sense, it is. There are better passages that are much stronger, and if we gave our emphasis to where they should be, then we wouldn't have to twist little things here and there to make it fit. That's just my perspective. Being hermeneutically uh, desirous, to be accurate, I just say that, because I do think that the rapture, the best place for it, is between chapter 3 and chapter 4. I do believe that. But it's not based on verse number one. It's based on what else I see in other passages of Scripture. Here's one of the arguments, though, that I think has some validity to it, and I'll give it to you this way. There is an argument from silence that goes right here in the book of Revelation. The silence is this. Chapters 1 through 3, he talks about his church. Chapter 4, there is no mention of the church until chapter 19, and there they are again. But where are they then? They're already in heaven. Somewhere between chapter 4 and chapter 19 is the rapture. Somewhere in between those two places is the rapture. Now, that's just an argument from silence, but Revelation 19.7 does say that the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So, by the time that day comes, the bride is already there. Now, in between chapter 4 and 19, it speaks of the tribulation. Right? There's a lot on the tribulation in those chapters. And the preparation for the second coming of Christ. How is it then that the church is seen in chapter 3, found in chapter 19 in heaven, unless the rapture has occurred somewhere in those points? So, I'm putting in a timeline for you a little bit here. But here's one reality I set with it. The church has been promised. By the Lord, that she will not experience the tribulation. That promise is given in several places. Chapter 5 of the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to read to you about 11 verses right there. Listen carefully. Or turn there, 1 Thessalonians 5, and follow along and you will see what I mean. Chapter 4 is on the rapture starting in verse 13 and moving to the end of that chapter 4, he's talking about the rapture of the church. All the believers there said, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what you taught us, Paul. We know. We remember. He says, I want you to remember. And so he goes into chapter 5, and he's not going to contradict chapter (laughs) 4. All right? Chapter number 5. Watch it. The pronouns are so important here. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren... You have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. That is not the rapture. The day of the Lord is coming for judgment. All right, That's not the rapture. He says, you already know this. Matter of fact, it's so well taught in the Old Testament. It's in almost every one of the prophets... The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Coming like a thief in the night. Let me ask you this. Is that a happy occasion? Most people put out banners to say welcome when a thief is coming through. I don't think so. We don't celebrate a thief in the night. The rapture is never described as a thief in the night. That's a negative concept, not a positive one. I know we all watched the movie back in the 70s, didn't we? Or it's not all of us, I'm sure, but the thief in the night it scared me to death. That movie did. I still think about it and think that white man is coming. You know, those kind of things worry me. but Deep uh, in the night, he says, "You know full well the day of the Lord is like that. And what is that? While they watch the words, they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness, that that day should overtake you like a thief. Keep going. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night. We're not of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those, watch the change again, those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on a breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath. The context is the day of the Lord in wrath. What did he just say? It's not for you, believer. It's not for you. You're not destined for that, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. We're back to the rapture theme. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another. I really don't know how somebody could teach that the church is going to be mid-trib or partial-trib or post-trib and say, aren't you encouraged? I don't find encouragement in any of those words. The words that he uses for encouragement are exactly the words he ended the last chapter on. So what's my point? There are those who will go through the tribulation, but it's not the church. So if that is all true, and I've got other verses too, if that's all true, then somewhere between chapter 4 and 19, that's the tribulation period. And guess what? That's why the church is missing in the dialogue. That's why. Because they're not there. It's not pertaining to them. Let me give you another passage, if you want this. Chapter 3 of Revelation. We were just there. Chapter 3. Go back to verse number 10 and 11. He says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from. Greek word, ek. That means out from. If he said... You are going through the hour of testing. He would have used dia. He would have said, I will keep you while you're going through. And you know what? The Lord is capable of that. <laughs> he can hold on to us in the midst of the storm, can't he? Absolutely. But he didn't say that. He didn't say, I'll keep you through the hour of trial and tribulation. He said, I'll keep you from. Ek is a really cool little word. It means away from. It's not in it. It's out of it. In other words, he's telling the church right there, I will keep you from, out from the hour of testing. Watch. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world. He's not talking about an isolated trouble. He's talking about a whole world under that trial, that testing. That's the tribulation. And he's talking to the readers of Revelation 3 and he says, I'm coming quickly. (laughs) And this day is coming soon. And trust me, I'm not going to let you go through it. I'm going to take you out of, take you out. Here's my evidence for you, just in Revelation and just in First Thessalonians five. I'm not just going to continue that dialogue here this morning. I did write a book about it. If you want to read that, Um, it's got a few chapters on this. I just wanted to make this observation for you, though. There is stronger evidence than just a few suggestions at the beginning of chapter four to say. That the rapture occurs between these chapters. There's stronger evidence than just saying, there's an open door here. There's a trumpet here. There's a lot of trumpets in scripture, folks. There's a whole bunch of judgments called trumpet judgments. Now, either the rapture is just all trumpets and we're doing it about seven times. Or else he's talking about trumpets for different reasons. This was a voice that sounded like a trumpet. All right. Just, Just helping us along the way. I'm not opposed at all to the idea chronologically there is a rapture between chapter 3 and 4. I think so. I think so. With all that said, the journey through Revelation at this point can become very dark. Very difficult. Very unwelcoming. As you start to see the chapters. Like a very bad day, you might say. Actually, a very bad seven years, if you want it that way. I believe in the imminency of the rapture. What does that mean? It can happen any day, any time. It doesn't need warnings. There are no warnings for the rapture. It's just going to happen. The Bible tells us that it's very close. And we've added 2,000 years to very close. When you start with the revelation, the book of Revelation here concerning the tribulation, about what we are about to see. Do you know there are signs that the tribulation is coming? That is given signs. Matthew twenty four, twenty five. There's other places where Jesus said, "Here's a sign. Watch for the sign. Watch for the sign." He's talking about the tribulation. He's not talking about the rapture. He says these are the signs. And what's interesting to me is that they're on the front page of your newspaper right now. And they say, whoa, that player is now in the in this game now, where they weren't five years ago, ten years ago, and now they're there. And you start to wonder. You know, if the rapture or if the tribulation is getting that close, that means the rapture is even closer. All right? That's what I see. That's what I understand as I go through this. In all that I have to say to you and what Revelation has to add to this all the way through, let's go to the main point God is worthy. Always worthy. Our Lord and our God is always worthy to receive the glory and the power and the honor. This world is His idea. Remember? He made this world. This world is His handiwork. He created it. This world belongs to Him. He came unto His own, by the way. John would write in chapter 1. He came to His own and they didn't receive Him. No different today. Our world belongs to Him and acts like it doesn't. It does its own thing. It does everything it can contrary to Him. But here's what's interesting. In that passage you saw in verse number 11, chapter 4, it says, They existed, this world, because of your will. Whoa! Think that through for a minute. It's by God's pleasure that this world exists right now by his pleasure i could tell you this much a nuclear bomb will not destroy this world god will destroy the world it's his plans it's his will it's his way that's what i step back and i say It's by his pleasure it exists and it would be his pleasure if it didn't That belongs to Him. The things we discuss originate at the throne of God. That's where it all starts. It's altogether fitting that this be the chapter before we go into the tribulation period. Because it's going to look like things are out of control. It's going to look like that God isn't on His throne anymore. There's chaos. There's punishment. There's all this stuff here. But chapter 4 says, let's not forget... God is on his throne, and he stays there. He is the one who has the will that's being enacted, being fulfilled all the way through. Now, it's not easy to view the throne room of heaven. It's not easy to describe it. John would tell you that here. In the sense, you've got to use your imagination sometimes to try to get this. Not because it's a piece of fiction. But because we've never been there. And neither had John when he was told to write this down. He says, write it down? How do I describe that? <laughs> he uses the word like. Watch it. It's how often it appears in the text. It was like this. It was like that. It was like this. He's got to compare it to something you know. Something you know. So he does a lot of comparisons so he could write this out to the church so he could remind you and remind me that God is on his throne. Let's start with the description of the throne room. Alright? The throne room. Verse number two. Obviously it has a throne in it. This is going to be very easy. You could start with a Quran right now and draw this as we go. All right? It's got a throne room. It's got a throne in it. And somebody was sitting on that throne. You see it in verse 2? Immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Let's hold the identity of that one for a minute and keep describing the throne room. What we also notice in verse number 2 is that there was a rainbow around the throne. You see it? There was a rainbow around the throne. There it is at the middle of verse number 3. It was a little unusual, though. The color. It's a green. Like an emerald. I honestly can't wait to see it. I think that's what, I, one of those things, you know, when you say, I can't wait to see this or that in heaven. i got to see that green rainbow. There was a really neat one the other day coming up by 81 or 81. Highway 81 as we're coming toward Kremlin. There was a rainbow. It was snowing. And the sun was shining across there. And there was a beautiful rainbow over there. And it was so close. I'm sure that pot was right underneath it. I should have gone over and got it. But it was was just a beautiful sight. But we picture rainbows in multiple colors. Who created the rainbow? And if he chose to use only greens, can he do it? Absolutely. He's got a green rainbow. I think, wow, that's going to be really cool to see. It's like that. What we also notice in that same throne room in verse number 4 is that there are 24 thrones, it seems, in a circle around the throne. 24 thrones. There were people on those too. Hold that thought. Also, verse number 5 says something really incredible. Out of the throne, there were flashes of lightning, there were sounds, there were peals of thunder. Sounds very powerful. And also in verse number 5, there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. They are described as the seven spirits of God. And that always makes me stop and say, what is that? So I had to look it up a little. I'll read this to you. These should be understood to represent the Holy Spirit rather than the seven individual spirits or angels with the concept of the sevenfold character of the Spirit. They give some verses here, but listen to this one. Isaiah eleven two, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear. That's only six. I don't know what the seventh one would be. But that's the verse they use to support the idea that this is the Holy Spirit and there are seven aspects to what he does. Maybe the seventh one is holiness. You could take a guess at that. But you could find that that is referenced in Revelation 1 verse 4. It's also Revelation chapter 5 verse 6. We see it again. And it's a little bit mystifying, but it's there. So you see it. You see seven torches, seven burning torches there before the throne. Seven of them. It's there in the throne room. Also notice in verse number six. There is something highly unusual before the throne. And it's a sea. Or it looks like a sea. And it's made entirely like glass. Or like crystal. That's got to be beautiful. That's what John saw when he entered into the throne room. That's the description from chapter four. So he says, okay, let me describe the worshipers to you. Go back to verse number four. We had 24 elders sitting on thrones. They were clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. Can you picture that? You see Dale and Jeff and Brian. Not these guys. 24 elders sitting on, people always say, who is that? I don't know. It doesn't tell us who they are. It just says that they're there. Twenty-four elders are sitting there. And they're clothed in white garments. They have golden crowns on their head. What kind of crown is that? It's a Stephanos crown. It's a crown given to a victor. It's a reward for a victory. That's what they were given. So it appears that whoever these individuals are, they must have served the Lord with such distinction or represent those who did. And they have received a reward for it. They're wearing a crown, a Stephanos crown. According to verse number 6 and through 8, there's another group there too. They're called the living creatures. There are four of them. They're a little bit more unusual. But I picture them now as an inner circle. The, the 24 thrones on the outside. The inner circle involving these Four living creatures before you get to the throne in the middle. That's the way I'm picturing this in my mind. But there they are between the elders' thrones and the center throne. And they are described as creatures with eyes in the front and in the back. Just like a mother. Right? They always wonder, how could you see that? Right? Now this is unusual... They're full of eyes in front and behind. One of them has the appearance that he looks like a lion, or she, or it, whatever it is. That creature looks like a lion. You say, well, I could picture that. Another one looks like a calf. Now, I think that's pretty incredible, because most of the time when we think about cats, we don't think ferocious, or something like that. The lion might give us that impression of power and ferocious, and I don't know what a calf does to you, except, oh, it's so cute. You know, but this one looks like a calf, interesting. The third one looks like it's got a man's face on it, and the fourth one looks like a flying eagle. By the way, they all have six wings. got to add that to your picture, no matter what you picture. Your calf has six wings, too. It has eyes everywhere, it says. And continually, day and night, they do not cease to proclaim that the Lord is holy. Try to imagine that. Day and night. Since they were created, apparently, that is their sole job is to continually cry out that the Lord is holy all the time. That's rather impressive to me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. It appears that this is some special rank of angel. Special rank of angel. What are they doing? Verse number 9 says, well, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who sits forever and ever, those 24 elders who are in the thrones around them fall down before him who sits on the throne. And they worship him who lives forever and and ever, and will cast their crowns before his throne. That's what they do. Now, if, I'm just imagining, if these creatures are doing this all the time, and it's continually propelling the elders to do that too, and to throw their crowns, they must go and collect them back up to do it again. Because they're constantly throwing crowns. It's kind of impressive. I can't wait to see it. It's got to be very impressive. But I'm going to guess this, that once they start this, we're going to join them. I don't think we're spectators. I saw the quote yesterday from Charles Spurgeon about the idea that there will be no spectators in heaven. We're all participants. And if they're worshiping, guess what we're going to do? We're going to worship too. We're going to see this going on, and these creatures are designed for this pers- purpose. They never stop their worship never 24 elders keep falling down they keep casting crowns they keep giving praise this worship goes on and on and on as long as the lord is god so when would that stop never their theme is his holiness their theme is his worth and i don't think that will ever diminish do you You remember in the movie Fiddler on the Roof, Tavia had this song he sang, If he Were a Rich Man. Toward the end of that song, he said these things. If I were a rich man, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray. And maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men seven hours every day. That would be the sweetest thing of all. Do you find worship of the Lord to be boring? I want to check your heart for a second, all right? Oh, you check it. Let me ask some questions. Do you long for eternity? To be in the presence of the Lord? This is His room. This is where you will be. This is what you will see. We talk at times about getting our hearts prepared for worship. Like, sometimes that's a chore for some of us, isn't it? we got this and this and this and this and this and this. And then we say, well, set your heart on the one that you're going to worship. Who is he? Well, he's sitting on a throne. He has the appearance of a jasper, whatever that appearance is supposed to recommend, like a clear stone or a diamond, something bright, something clear, something, you know, that really captures your eye. He has the appearance of a Stardius stone, it says also in verse number three. And that might be a ruby red color. And I'm trying to picture what that looks like. But that's the only description of him in this passage. We hear peals of thunder. We see lightning. We see rainbows. We see seas of glass. We see thrones. We see elders, four living creatures. We see a concert prayer service going on. I don't know, but if sometimes all of that might be a distraction to take your eyes off the one who's on the throne. You say, ooh, 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 ooh. And you're starting to look all around the room at all the other things. And John comes back to it and says, who's the worthy one here? Because we're not here to worship a sea of glass, are we? We're not here to worship thunder and lightning. We're not here to worship the four living creatures. We're not here to worship the elders. We're not here to worship the crowns on our heads. We're here to worship Him who sits on the throne. He sits on the throne. The focus of praise and worship is around Him. You said, you know, sometimes it's hard to get my heart in tune for worship. I think you need to set it on the one you're to worship. That will change the heart. He lives forever and ever. Look at the words in verse 9 through 11. They start to, to describe their worship service. The words they use. He lives forever and ever. He has glory. He has honor. He has the power. He is the creator. He exercises His will. Whatever He wills, happens. That's him. By the way, notice what the living creatures added to their song service in verse number 9. They give him thanks. Thanks. I don't know about this, but of all the creatures on the earth, it's man that has the trouble saying thank you. If you go to Jonah's story, you know, Jonah swallowed by the whale, the whole thing. Read all chapters 4. Everything in that book obeys the Lord but Jonah. Everything does. Even the worm does. But it's a man that always has a problem obeying and worshiping his God. Why is that? Do we have to be that way? We who know him, who long to be with him, can we not engage our hearts? To start worshiping the one we're going to worship forever and ever and ever. When do we start the practice? When do we start the practice? What does worthy mean to you? When we say he's worthy, what do you mean by that? The Greek word is axios. It means it has weight. You say, well, that's an interesting word. It means it has worth. It has weight. It deserves something. It's fitting for something. The curious idea of this little word is like that of a set of scales. Where on one side you put the item to be measured, and on the other side you put the weights themselves. And that way you could balance it out and figure out how much that thing weighs based on how you use that. But the question I want to ask you is if you're going to put God on that side of the scale, what do you possibly put on the other side to make Him worthy? What do you possibly measure Him to? If such a task was given to man, we would find some who do not give Him glory, right? There are multitudes in our world who do not give Him glory. They have more concerns about their own worth, as little as that is. There are those who refuse to give Him glory. You will see that's a typical reaction from chapter 5 all the way through to 19. They refuse to give Him glory. They don't want to give Him glory. The reaction of our world today is not to give God glories. I don't know if you've noticed that. Far off too often... It's the attitude of our media or the lessons in our classrooms or the themes of those who want to rewrite all our history and rewrite all our science. And what they do is leave God out of it as much as they can. They don't want to give Him the glory for what we've seen or what we've done, what we've gone through. matter of fact, there are so many who would rather mock God. And they mock God's people. There are those who deny His truth. Those who circumvent His law. There are those who ignore these things. They neither take a stand on it because, well, they don't want it to be a bother to them. There are those who give men glory and they revel in temporary power or temporary beauty. They, they, they revel in vanishing wealth. They honor men who can hit the ball the farthest. It's all these different things that we see in our society of what is worth. What is worth? People and events that someday will be overshadowed by more people and events as we go through time. We operate in a mentality that reduces worth to the smallest of fractions. We cut it down, cut it down because we don't see the whole. We don't understand the whole. We're all wrapped up in the present. We cannot think the eternal. And yet, what is they calling us to do? Give worthy attention to our God. Worthy are you. Wow! You know, that's going to take a big change for even us to get up there and understand that and do it. What is the blind man's first view when Jesus heals him? Is it not Jesus? Oh Lord, give us eyes like that. That want to see you want to see you. Give us a heart that can measure your worth. That's a prayer I think we should have. Because we're not here to worship His throne. We're not here to worship His stones that they represent. We're not here to worship rainbows. We're not here to worship lightning and thunder. We're not here to worship fire or sea or living creatures or robes or crowns. The conclusion is that God is worthy. God is worthy. Our Lord and our God. What sweeter pronoun can you put before those two words than the word our? Are? Aren't you glad to read it? Our God. Our Lord. What a precious word that is. He is Lord. But is He yours? He is God. Is He ours? The world falls. The elders fall. The creatures fall. But God lives forever and ever. Forever and ever. Whom do you serve then? Whom do you serve? Who do you worship? You know that there is not many words in the dictionary between the word worthy and worry. Think about that for a few minutes. Sometimes we struggle with worry, don't we? It's tempting when you read chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way to 19. Worry is very distracting from worthy. How strategic it is to me that this chapter is right here in the book. Before we start talking about the things we worry about, that we get the one that's worthy of our attention. That's where we have to start. When we go into this. Because man judgments are clear. When you know who's, who's the judge. We needed a view of the throne room. And God who sits on the throne. And why is that? Because of the very thing I tell you every week. We who are expecting these things. We understand he's coming. We understand he's coming. And the promise is. This is our blessed hope. This is the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior. He gave himself, remember, to redeem us. To, to redeem us from every lawless deed. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. And we are to be different because of that. We are to live like that. Because someday you're going to see him. And everyone has that hope purifies Himself just as He is pure. I wanted to bring that to you again and again and again to show you that when we get to this book, it's about Jesus. It's about His glory. It's about the one that we know has worked that we are here to worship. I want to read to you a preview for the end of the book. You ready? It comes from chapter 22. It says in verse 1, Then He showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, with a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see... His face. Wow! And His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no longer any night. There will be no need of the light of the lamp, the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and He will reign forever and ever. You're going to see it. You're going to see it. Next week, Let's try chapter 5. But let's not take our eyes off the throne. Alright? Let's read it, if you will, this week. Chapter 5 in advance. Heavenly Father, how can we even try in our human words to express praise to you after such a chapter like this? To say the words, amazing, awesome, incredible. We use all kinds of words to express things that go beyond our minds, beyond our words. And you know, Lord, that we only see partially. You know that we are but dust. You know that we, we are so weak. And yet, these are the things you have done for us. That we, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, should be taken up to be with you forever, forever, that we may see your glory, that we might participate in this worship forever and ever and ever. Such things are too great for us to understand why you should love us so. But we will say this, thank you for loving us. And thank you for redeeming us. And thank you for taking us to be your own possession. We long for this day when the words become reality, when we see You as You are and give You praise. And thank You, Lord, for that hope that's in our hearts today. We look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen.